0: The biggest lesson is to focus on product market fit, which seems obvious, but I think it's something that many, especially first-time founders, underappreciate.
1: I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we sit down with Gabby Lewis, who is the co-founder of Magic Spoon. Gabby, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: For sure. I'm looking forward to conversation. So I want to start just with, you know, what Magic Spoon is for somebody that might not be familiar with the business.
0: Yeah, Magic Spoon is a brand of breakfast cereal, and we recreate all your favorite childhood breakfast cereals with more protein, less sugar, and fewer carbs. So imagine Fruit Loops or Lucky Charms, but actually good for you. We launched the business in 2019, so we're coming up on four years old, and we started Built the business primarily direct-to-consumer, though now we're omnichannel and sell through major retailers as well.
1: So you mentioned we when you uh, you talked about that. So talk to me about the, the co-founders behind the business and what really ignited this idea for Magic Spoon.
0: There's two of us. My co-founder is named Greg, and he and I met at Brown University. And we actually had a different food business before this one that we built together called Exo Protein. That was a sustainable protein business. And we ran that for about five years together. And we ended up selling that business in 2018. And we decided we wanted to stay in the food industry. We're both incredibly passionate about it. But we wanted to enter a category that was a huge category and nobody was innovating in it very much. And so we were literally wandering the grocery store, looking at different categories. And when you look for the largest categories in the grocery store, you see soda, milk and cereal. And at the time, the soda category felt very saturated with innovation, everything from kombucha to non-alcoholic drinks likewise the milk category felt like there was a lot going on everything from lab grown dairy to milking every nut or seed you can think of and then we looked at the cereal aisle and we realized it looked the same four years ago as it did 40 years ago and so we started asking people why has nobody tried to create a better cereal better meaning higher quality ingredients and better macronutrients and so we had seen something happen in every other category whether it's candy or you know snack bars where the ingredients are improved the macronutrients are improved so you've got the halo tops of the world the smart sweets the world and nobody could give us a good reason as to why nobody had done that for cereal they would say to us oh cereal is a dying category millennials are too lazy to pour a bowl of cereal anymore that didn't seem like a good reason to us for a number of reasons they'd say uh, the categories in decline year over year but of course it's declining from several billion to slightly lower than several billion and only declining because the products in the market weren't talking to today's consumer. They tell us that the large cereal companies will never let you get on a shelf. We knew from our last business that if you build a brand and generate enough hype and momentum, you can get on shelves even if it's dominated by some large players. And so in the absence of any good reason not to do it, we, we rolled up our sleeves and started working on the idea for a better view cereal brand. And so we developed the branding, which was a sort of nod to classic childhood cereals with a slightly grown-up psychedelic twist. So we have these characters in all of our boxes that look like a grown-up version of your classic characters, and the flavors are deeply witted nostalgia. So we try and make flavors that remind you of cereal when you're growing up, and the idea is that it tastes like it's terrible for you, but it's actually very, very good for you.
1: You mentioned that EXO was your first business the two of you launched As you went and launched Magic Spoon, what lessons did you take from your first entrepreneurial journey that changed what you did in your second?
0: The biggest lesson is to focus on product market fit, which seems obvious, but I think it's something that many, especially first-time founders, underappreciate. Maybe less so today, but I think several years ago, there, there was definitely a pervasive idea, especially on the West Coast, that if you're a smart, passionate founder, you can just make anything work. And we we fully, fully believed in that and had some investors around us as well that really underlined that to us. And so our last business specifically was a cricket protein business. And so we launched a line of protein bars using cricket protein, which, as you can imagine, was difficult from a demand perspective to convince people it wasn't weird. And it was also difficult from a supply perspective because there was zero supply chain. And so we we got into that because we thought it was an interesting idea. It made sense to us because cricket proteins very nutritious, very sustainable. We thought it was an exciting marketing challenge to figure out how to market that to American consumers. But we didn't fully appreciate how difficult that hurdle would be, especially crossing the chasm from an early adopter to a mainstream consumer. And so for the second business, we wanted to go after a massive existing category and just improve a product there and try and create something that could go from say zero to a hundred in a few years, which you're never going to do when you're creating a category from scratch.
1: So continuing down that line, you know, how investors think about CPG brands changed a lot from when you launched Exo to starting Magic Spoon to frankly, even today now, uh, as we come you know, a few years later, what have you learned about how investors think about the category and what advice do you give to others that are kind of following down the path?
0: I think it depends what you want to accomplish and what kind of investors you're going after. You know, there's, there's a path where you raise a few hundred thousand dollars in angel investments, and then you grow somewhat organically by going to regional natural food stores and region by region, retailer by retailer, and you build up over the course of 10, 15 years, perhaps. That's not the path we took. Our path was we raised a million dollars purely on the idea before we even made the product for the first time or created the brand. And then we raised about six million million two two months after launching. And in total, over the last four years, we've raised about $100 million for the business. And we did that because we're entering an enormous category with three extremely large competitors, all of which we knew would copy us and they all have copied us at this point and lots of startup competitors as well. And so we we believe that there is an opportunity for a healthier cereal, truly healthier cereal to capture, let's say, three to five percent of the cereal market. But there's really only room for one or two brands to do that. And so we decided to go all in and try and grow this as quickly as we reasonably could within certain guardrails. And so for that, we needed investors that were, you know, deeper pocketed than your average angel investor and investors that understood our vision, the speed at which we were trying to move and, you know, investors that, that really trusted us and we trusted them. And so our first round of funding was mostly investors that backed us in our prior business. We obviously had that, that luxury of having spent many years developing trust that, most founders, you know, don't have that, especially if you're a first-time founder. We didn't have that the first time we raised money. So I think finding investors that are aligned with the scale at which you want to build the business to and the speed is very important. And then also doing it at the right moment in your company's life cycle. I think lots of founders fall into the trap of thinking that it's better to accomplish something and then raise the money, whereas in many cases raising money with a sort of shared goal is actually easier depending on the investor. And so thinking through the right timing, thinking through, you know, what is the sort of next inflection point that you're raising to get to and making sure that at every stage you're aligning everybody's expectations and valuation around the next stage, right? Lots of founders, especially early stage founders or first time founders will get a little bit too greedy and raise up too high of a valuation just because they can. And that can make it really hard to grow your business because then you have to grow into that valuation. And so for us, it was sort of thinking through what is the end point here? What are the rounds of funding we need to do to get there? How do we back into reasonable valuations at each time? So everybody is always really excited and happy with the performance as well.
1: With that in mind, you you mentioned you guys have launched originally as a D2C business to start off and then you went into retail in today's environment. How have you had to think about the building a brand differently if you start at D2C versus starting at retail?
0: Yeah, so for us... We actually didn't launch with the intention of becoming a D2 c brand we We launched as a healthy cereal company, and we thought we would grow that company direct to consumer for a few months while we found our feet, proved the concept, and then we thought we'd go into retail within a few months. Turns out it took us four years to go to retail, and we that happened because the D2 C business was just growing so quickly, and we're always trying to remain as narrowly focused as we possibly can. And do as much as we can while doing as little as we can. And so to the extent that DTC was growing fast, that was enough for us. We didn't want to distract our team or resources with going into multiple channels at once. And so we just kept on building DTC until we started to see the tides change a little bit and the DTC landscape just getting harder in general. And so once we saw that was maybe a year out, we started exploring what a retail expansion would look like. And we were fortunate because we had built such a nice business direct to consumer for a few years and also a large social following and everything that comes with building a large DTC business, we had a sort of pull strategy from the retailers rather than a push strategy. And so every major retailer was in our inbox when we were ready to say go. And so we were able to call up, you know, a few of the largest retailers, give them an update on our performance and create a really nice launch in retail that was a deep partnership where both sides are contributing to the marketing launching with NCAPS, you know, most of our retailers and things like that. And so we're able to have a really powerful launch because of everything we built before launching into retail. And as a result, we've shot to the top of most of the rankings and the retailers we're in, which is really exciting. So in, in many cases, we have the best-selling cereal skew out of hundreds of cereals in a given retailer.
1: Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world, helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So with that, you know, as you said, you were lucky enough to be able to have this built in poll, if you will, to kind of get in there. What led you to the choice of multiple retailers versus a single launch partner right off the bat?
0: So we did actually launch with Target as our first retail partner, but only for a few months. So we, we went deep with Target for a few months and we, we chose them for a number of reasons very very close sort of brand affinity to our brand when we surveyed our direct-to-consumer customers about where do they shop in retail large overlap with the target consumer and they also of course have a long history of launching direct-to-consumer brands into retail so brands like harry's and i think brands like that sort of launched from direct to consumer into target so we worked with them at first and then we layered on sprouts three months later and then in January of this year, we launched into Kroger, Albertsons, and Walmart. And so now we just have those five main partners, and we have really good and sort of deep partnerships with each of them. And you know, part of the idea here is that we, we've always wanted to be a cereal that's available anywhere that cereal is bought and sold. And so that meant going to mass retail pretty quickly rather than just starting with the you know the Airwans or the Whole Foods of the world, which would have kept it a little bit more sort of, exclusive, but ultimately undermined our our larger vision and goal.
1: With that kind of expansion to some of those biggest retailers out there, has the business had to change or evolve in any ways as you think about balancing driving to D2C versus driving to those retailers or any other aspects of the business overall?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is from a team perspective, we built our entire team to be a best in class direct to consumer team, right? That means our Logistics people are amazing at optimizing small parcel delivery to an individual 's home. It means our you know of course our marketing team is a primarily direct response growth marketing team, and so we 've had to work with everyone to sort of evolve those skills to the new reality of us being an omnichannel business and in most cases, it works really nicely because we 're able to bring to the retailer a set of capabilities that most brands don 't have so we can you know, work with the many hundreds of influencers that we've worked with over the years for direct-to-consumer to to drive traffic into store and sort of ensure that it's incremental aisle traffic for the retailer as well, which is really what they want. And that's true of most of our marketing channels. So we're we're getting very good at using, you know, direct-to-consumer growth marketing levers to drive in-store trial and purchases. And that's really a win-win for everyone. Of course, we need to balance that with the sort of business that we build and make sure there's not too much cannibalization. But so far, it definitely seems to be a sort of rising tide, you know, lifts all boards type phenomenon.
1: So with that kind of move in traditional retailer, you started in the cereal aisle. How have you thought about what category innovation needs to look like and maybe crossing into other new products and new categories that aren't going to be sitting on the website right next to each other? They might be two or three aisles over.
0: We're, we're very fortunate that cereal is an enormous category. And so... Whatever our goals might be, we can accomplish them just in cereal. You know, you, you can build a, you know, business doing many hundreds of millions of dollars a year just doing cereal. So we're trying to remain pretty focused. That being said, we've you know acquired a lot of customers online. We've now got these deep relationships with retailers, and so we're we're being asked both from the individual customers and the retailers. You know, what's next? How can you magic spoonify some new category? And in some cases, we don't believe it really makes sense. You know, you, there are other brands making healthier, nostalgic leaning versions of categories. And so they, they can certainly do that. We'd love to see that. There are other categories though that are maybe closer to the breakfast day part that we think we we do have permission to to enter and you know create a better version of something. So we're we're exploring with a few similar categories to to our core category, but it's not top of our list of things that we're working on right now. And we're really just trying to be the best healthy cereal there is and put that into as many people's bowls as we can.
1: So with that, you mentioned, you know, the things you look at with the brand, you know, that nostalgic feeling, that breakfast day part, that healthier for you. What are those intangibles as you think about this brand that you make sure your marketing teams,
0: your product teams, you never stray beyond? It's a good question. And we, we debate this internally a lot. We We try not to be too dogmatic about it. So, you know, we discuss this at the conceptual level of nostalgia, but we also discuss it at the, you know, product guardrail level of right now, all of our products have zero grams of sugar. We debate internally, what does it mean if we were to put two grams of sugar into something? You know, is zero sugar really key to Magic Spoon or is it just being meaningfully lower in sugar than traditional cereal or whatever the categories we're talking about? And I think that's evolving over time as our customer base evolves, right? So the first 100,000 customers we acquired online three, four years ago, very different to the next 100,000 or million customers we're gonna acquire through somebody walking in the aisle of Walmart. And so when we think about what are the absolute guardrails, it is a product that evokes joy and nostalgia and is fun and colorful and is the antithesis of health food that takes itself too seriously. And then on the product guardrail side, it is being high in protein, lower in carbs and lower in sugar. But we're still working through exactly where do those lines sit in terms of the product guardrails and talking to our customers about it as well. And we're, we're learning that over time it changes. So whereas a couple of years ago for our customers, it was really important to be, you know, over 12, 13 grams of protein on, on average. Now, some people are saying maybe only 10, 11 grams is okay. And sort of as nutrition trends evolve, we're making sure that we are too, whilst not alienating the early customer base.
1: We're coming out of, you know, one of the greatest decades ever for brand building and new brands being launched, new businesses and CPG, new categories. What do you think we're going to see over the next 10 years as you think about continuing to grow Magic Spoon and watch the, you know, grocery aisles uh, continue to grow and change and evolve?
0: I think we're going to see pretty much every category be disrupted in a way that someone's coming along and creating a a healthier, better branded version of it. And even just looking in the grocery store the past two, three years versus 10, 15 years ago. I mean, every single category now, some some probably too niche. Someone's coming in and hiring a trendy branding agency probably for $100,000 and creating a slightly improved product. And so I think we're sort of seeing a wave of this happening everywhere and a lot of funding going to it happening everywhere probably is happening in some places where it doesn't need to happen, right? There's some categories that are probably just okay as they are and they don't need millennial fancy branding on them. And in some cases the, the improved branding experience is overtaking an actual improved product experience. So I think there's going to be a little bit of a correction there potentially. And we've always been very careful to make sure that we're not, we're not just making like a cool cereal or making a better cereal so for us, the branding and the design and the characters, that's all important to convey the feeling we want our brand to have. But that's not what our innovation is, right? Our innovation is creating cereal that's 15 times higher in protein and 20 times lower in sugar than the actual cereal um, or traditional cereal. And so I think hopefully some more of that. And I think there's going to be like a little bit of a correction where brands are sort of new brands are focusing a little bit too much on the feeling and the branding and less on actually improving the product itself. I
1: love that. You know, so related to that, a final question of you guys have done a masterful job of crossing over generations and not to your point, just being a a brand for millennial branding, if you will. What steps have you taken to get that broad appeal? And have you had to choose different marketing tactics to attract an audience that maybe is more of a loyal serial user of decades of use that didn't realize they needed something different?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing is choosing a product that just inherently has broad market appeal, right? You know, if we were if we were trying to make the next kombucha, you know, no hate on kombucha, then it probably wouldn't be very easy to attract an older demographic. You would have to educate them from the start. And cereal is an enormous category. Everybody of any age you stop in the street has a box of cereal, most likely in their cabinet. If they don't, they still grew up with it and maybe don't have it anymore because they're too healthy now. And so I think the first step is just choosing a product in a category that lends itself to broad appeal. And then it's all about making sure you're not getting trapped in your own sort of marketing channels and reminding yourself as a founder that you're not marketing to yourself. The product doesn't exist for you, right? Even if maybe that was where the, the idea first came from. But Greg and I are always reminding ourselves if we're sampling a new flavor and we don't like it, it doesn't matter whether we like it or not, right? What matters is like, is our consumer base on average gonna enjoy it? And I think that's true from a product formulation perspective. It's true when we're thinking about sugar and protein, like it's not about whether I want 15 grams versus 10 grams of protein, it's about whether the customer does. And also relevant for the marketing channels as well, right? I don't have TikTok, but it's an important channel to be on. And so we're making sure we're going after younger demographics there. And on the flip side, I'm not a passionate radio listener. That many people are. And so we advertise on radio to certain demographics as well. And so, you know, just trying to extract yourself from it and do the whole thing more objectively is super important.
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and uh, share a little bit more about your journey of Magic Spoon. So thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.